Welcome to Tom Bradford's Torah Class, an in-depth Old Testament Bible study that's brought to you from a Hebrew roots perspective. This week's lesson is week number 18, Nehemiah, chapters 12 and 13. As we observed in our study of Nehemiah 12 last week, all the fruits of the Jews' dedication and commitment and labor and turning back to the Lord and away from their sinning ways in sincere repentance was finally paying off. The community from top to bottom displayed a rare unity of spirit and purpose. Their exhaustion from rebuilding the broken down walls of Jerusalem had turned to exhilaration as they marched around the the tops of those massive walls in holy procession to give credit and to give thanks to the God of Israel who had in His great mercy returned these exiles to their homeland, Judah. Now the overriding theme of the wall dedication was joy. Over and over the description of the scene uses the words joy and rejoice. And while this joy was on the spiritual level about the sense of reconnecting with the God of Israel, on a practical level, there was now a sense of security because this rebuilt wall provided protection from the marauders and from the nations who who might want to attack this holy city. And in so many ways, the rebuilding and now the dedication of the wall is a climax to the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. It is perhaps the high point of a very long process of exile and restoration. Now I mentioned it last week, but I'd like to say it again. After a long journey of running away from God and living a a, a sinful meaningless life. Often, the end of that road is pain and calamity. And when we decide to turn around and head back towards God in sincere repentance, just as often, it's a long, bumpy, exhausting path to get there. Too much Christianity implies that all we have to do is fall on our knees, pray the sinner's prayer, and accept Messiah and all our troubles are over. That's not the biblical description of what usually happens. It's not been my personal experience, nor what I have seen happen with others. Obviously, it's not the same for everyone in every situation. Now, in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah, we have watched the exiled Jews living in the Babylonian Empire, only then to have it taken over by the Persians, being freed and then given the opportunity to come back home. Only a few did, because they all well knew that the path back was going to be paved with sacrifice and with upheaval. And most Jews, as far as we know, were living decent enough lives in line with what others in the Persian Empire were experiencing. Many had productive trades, businesses. For many more, they were born in Babylon and in Persia. And whatever their circumstances, this was home. It was their comfort zone. 
So could we say that it was only that roughly 5% who returned that represented the small fraction of Jews who truly understood what had caused their calamitous exile in the first place and who had sincerely repented? Yes, although not without exception, I think so. I mean, is it true repentance to admit our sin, see our wrong, lament over it, and then not act to overturn it? Persia was not supposed to be the place where God's people lived. Persia was not to be their homeland. It was to be their place of punishment. The Lord had specifically assigned the Hebrews to a special plot of land ordained by the Abrahamic covenant, Canaan. It was to be the kingdom of God on earth. I have no doubt that these 95% of Jews who made the personal choice not to go back to Judah, they had all sorts of logical and rational and practical reasons to stay in the land of their exile. It's a modern proverb that we hear often that expresses this thought rather well. Better the devil you know than the one you don't. In other words, the modern intellectual thought is to choose the familiar no matter how bad or wicked it might be. Choose that over the unfamiliar because you can't know for sure how this unfamiliar situation might turn out. It could be worse from where you are now. And it's the same sort of decision process that all humanity faces in all ages, even for those who profess Jesus. Following God inevitably requires hard choices. It requires letting go of things that are familiar and comfortable, even valuable to you, in exchange for a future that you cannot know, at least your future on earth. That is the definition of faith. Yet, faith is the requirement. Listen to Luke 14, 25-33. Large crowds were traveling along with Yeshua, and turning he said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, his wife, his children, his brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, besides, he cannot be my disciples. Whoever does not carry his own execution stake and come after me cannot be my disciples. Suppose one of you wants to build a tower. Don't you sit down and estimate the cost to see if you have enough capital to complete it? If you don't, then when you have laid the foundation but can't finish, all the onlookers start making fun of you and they say, this man began to build but he couldn't finish. Or again, suppose one king is going out to wage war against another king. Doesn't he first sit down and consider whether he, with his 10,000 troops, has enough strength to meet the other one who is coming against him with 20,000? If he hasn't, 
that while the other is still far away, he sends a, delega- sends a delegation to inquire about terms for peace. So every one of you who doesn't renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Let's pick up at Nehemiah chapter 12, verse 44. Nehemiah chapter 12, verse 44. If you have a complete Jewish Bible, it is page 1149. 1149. Nehemiah chapter 12, starting at verse 44. At that time, men were appointed to be in charge of the storerooms for supplies, contributions, first fruits, and tents to gather into them from the fields belonging to the cities the portions prescribed by the Torah for the Kohanim and the Levi'im, for the priests and the Levites. For Judah rejoiced over the priests and the Levites who took their position, carrying out the duties of their God and the duties of purification, as also did the singers and the gatekeepers in accordance with the order of David and of Shlomo his son. For back in the days of David and Asaph, there had been leaders for those singing the songs of praise and thanksgiving to God. So in the days of Zerubbabel and in the days of Nehemiah, All Israel gave portions to the singers and the gatekeepers as required daily. They set aside a portion for the Levites, who in turn set aside a portion for the descendants of Aaron. The opening words of this passage are, at that time. And it is connected to what has just happened, the wall dedication ceremony. Now it doesn't mean that it happened on the same day. Just in close proximity and that it has a connection with the wall dedication on some level and what we see happening has an element of of idealism involved with it now we ought to expect it the residents of Judah were on a spiritual high very recently the entire population of Judah had agreed to a statement of faith to scrupulously obey the Torah of Moses. And what we read here is but one of the articles of faith contained within the overall statement of faith that is now being implemented. Back in Nehemiah chapter 10, we read this in verses 38 through 40. We will bring the first of our dough, our contributions, the fruit of every kind of tree, wine and olive oil to the Kohanim in the storerooms of the house of our God along with the tents from our land for the Levi'im since they, the Levi'im, take the tents in all the cities where we farm. The Kohen, the priest, the descendant of Aaron is to be with the Levites when the Levites take tents. The Levites will bring the tenth of the tenth to the house of our God to the storerooms for supplies. For the people of Israel and the descendants of Levi are to bring the contribution of grain, wine, and olive oil to the rooms where the equipment for the sanctuary, the ministering priests, the gatekeepers, and the singers are. We will not abandon the house of our God. Now, So now we read that indeed men have been assigned to oversee the treasury chambers and to assure that the tithes are brought into the house of God and then distributed to the temple workers. And we again find the use of the word joy as the dominant attitude of all Judah towards the giving of these tithes to the Levites and the priests because they felt so good 
about knowing that these temple servants were faithfully doing the work assigned to them by God. All was working now as it should. We also see that the system of setting up a rotation of priests and Levites and singers and gatekeepers and so on that David had instituted, that Solomon had continued, had become the standard that was being followed. And I want to comment that there was nothing wrong with setting up such a system because nothing about it violated God's commandments and it created order, which itself reflects God's character. Now the final verse of chapter 12 makes it clear that it wasn't just now with Nehemiah around 440 BC that this orderly system of temple service was reinstated. It goes back to the time of Zerubbabel in about 538 BC as he led the first wave of Jewish exiles back to Judah close to a century earlier. So the point of the final passage is this. The entire Jewish lay community supported the temple more than merely willingly. They were enthusiastic. They were joyful. They didn't see what they tithed as being a tax, but rather as a happy obligation that was to their benefit. But how much of what they did was because their hearts had fundamentally changed thanks to Ezra's teachings and Nehemiah's steadfast leadership versus simply riding that emotional high of the lofty events of the last few weeks as another modern proverb rightly says what goes up must come down That's what we're about to see in chapter 13. So open your Bibles to Nehemiah chapter 13. Page 1149 again, if you have a complete Jewish Bible. It was also at that time when they were reading in the scroll of Moshe, Moses, that it was found written that no Ammonite or Moabite may ever enter the assembly of God because they did not supply the people of Israel with food and water, but hired Bilam against them to put a curse on them, although our God turned the curse into a blessing. And on hearing the Torah, they separated from Israel everyone of mixed ancestry. Also prior to this, Eliashiv, the Kohen, the priest, who had been put in charge of the storage rooms in the house of our God, and who was related by marriage to Tobiah, had prepared for him a large room where formerly they had stored the grain offerings and the frankincense and equipment and the the tenths of grain and wine and olive oil ordered to be given to the Levites and the singers and the gatekeepers and the contributions for the priests. Now during all this time, I wasn't present in Jerusalem because in the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, Artaxerxes, the king of Babel, I went to see the king. Then after some time had passed, I asked permission from the king and returned to Jerusalem where I found out about the terrible thing El Yashiv had done for Tobiah by preparing a room for him in the courtyards of the house of our God. I was so furious that I threw all Tobiah's household goods out of the room. Then at my order, they cleansed the rooms and I brought back the equipment of the house of God, the grain offerings and the frankincense. 
Now I also learned that the portions of the Levites had not been given to them. So that the Levites and the singers who were supposed to be doing the work had deserted, each one to his own farm. And I disputed with the leaders, demanding, Why is the house of God abandoned? I gathered the Levites together, I restored them to their stations, and then all Judah brought the tenth of grain and wine and olive oil to the storerooms. To supervise the storerooms, I appointed Shalemiah, the Kohen, Zadok, the Torah teacher, and from the Levites, Periah. And assisting them was Hanan, the son of Zakur, the son of Matanyah. For these were considered reliable. Their duty was to make the distribution to their kinsmen. My God, remember me for this. Don't wipe out my good deeds which I've done for the house of my God and for His service. And during this time I saw in Judah some people who were treading wine presses on Shabbat. Also bringing in heaps of grain, loading donkeys with it. Likewise, wine and grapes, figs, all kinds of loads. And they were bringing them into Jerusalem on the day of Shabbat. And on the day when they were planning to sell the food, I warned them not to. They were also, there were also living there people from Zor who brought in fish and all kinds of goods and sold them on Shabbat to the people in Judah and even in Jerusalem. I disputed with the nobles of Judah, demanding of them, What is this terrible thing you are doing, profaning the day of Shabbat? Didn't your ancestors do this? Didn't our God bring all this disaster on us and on this city? Yet, you are bringing still more fury against Israel by profaning Shabbat. So when the gates of Jerusalem began to grow dark before Shabbat, I ordered that the doors be shut. And I ordered that they not be reopened until after Shabbat. I put some of my servants in charge of the gates to see to it that no loads be brought in on Shabbat. The merchants and sellers of all kinds of goods spent the night outside Jerusalem once or twice until I warned them, Why are you spending the night by the wall? Do it again. I'll use force against you. From then on, they stopped coming on Shabbat. Then I ordered the Levites to purify themselves and come and guard the gates in order to keep the day of Shabbat holy. My God, remember this too for me. Have mercy on me in keeping with the greatness of your grace. Also during this time I saw the Judeans who had married women from Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab. And their children who spoke half in the language of Ashdod couldn't speak the language the Judeans spoke, but only in the language of each people. I disputed with them, I cursed them, I beat some of them up, and I pulled out their hair. That I made them swear by God, you will not give your daughters as wives for their sons, or take their daughters as wives for your sons or for yourselves. Wasn't it by doing these things that Shlomo, king of Israel, sinned? There was no king like him among many nations, and God loved him. And God made him king over all Israel. Nevertheless, the foreign women caused him even to sin. Are we to give in to you and let you continue in this very great evil, breaking faith with our God by marrying foreign women? One of the sons of Yoyadah, the son of El-Yashiv, the Kohen Hagadol, the high priest, had become son-in-law to Sanvalot, the Horonite. So I drove him out of my presence. 
might God remember them because they've defiled the office of priest and the covenant of the priests and Levites. Thus I cleansed them of everything foreign, and I had the priests and the Levites resume their duties, each one in his appointed task. I also made provision for the delivery of wood at the stated times and for the first fruits. My God, remember me favorably. You know, as we enter the final chapter of Nehemiah, we again hear these opening words at that time. Now, some scholars want to link this passage to the final verses of chapter 12 that we just studied, and that could well have been. However, these words are not trying to give us a precise time, but only an approximation. And the phrase, at that time, needs to be mostly associated with the next few words that say, when they were reading the scroll of Moses. So the idea probably is that when they were assembled, and when the Torah was being taught, what follows is what happened next. And the priests and the were, were apparently reading to the people in Deuteronomy chapter 23. Because there we find this in verses 4 and 5. <clears throat> no, um, no Ammoni or Maovi, no uh, Ammonite or Moabite, may enter the assembly of Adonai. Nor may any of his descendants down to the tenth generation ever enter the assembly of Adonai. Because they did not supply you with food and water when you were on the road after leaving Egypt. And because they even hired Bilam, the son of Beor from Petor, and Aram Naharim to put a curse on you. Bottom line is that foreigners were not to be allowed into the congregation of God. Now this is not the first time we've heard this and Ezra and Nehemiah. However, here it is quite specific about which foreigners this is speaking. And verse 3 tells us that the Jews of Judah uh, set about to obey this command. Verse 3 presents us with a very interesting scenario. Now we're going to read in a number of English translations about just who it was that was being excluded from the congregation of Israel. Our complete Jewish Bible says everyone of mixed ancestry. The RSV, Revised Standard Version says all those of foreign descent. The Greek Septuagint says every alien in Israel. The complete James, uh, the, rather the King James uh, Version says all of a mixed multitude. And there are other versions that say it differently from these. The issue centers around the translation of the Hebrew word Ereb, Ereb, and it's pronounced a lot like the modern word Arab. It is an unusual word for this context. So the question is always exactly what group is this referring to? Now if we go back to the Torah and the book of Exodus, we find this same word used in a way that is familiar to us. And using the most standard English translations of Exodus 12.8, we read this like it's used in the complete, uh, rather, rather the King James Version. 
And a mixed multitude went up also with them, and flocks and herds, and even very much cattle. So there we find the term mixed multitude that is also attempting to translate the Hebrew Ereb. So what it seems to be getting at in Nehemiah 13.3 isn't about people of mixed blood, that is, products of interbreeding among various races, but rather various people of any and all races who aren't Hebrew. And further, unlike the event of Ezra 10 that involved families being dissolved through divorce from foreign women, that sort of thing is not at all implied here. The issue is that non-Hebrews may not be part of a sacred gathering for the purposes of worship and sacrifice to the God of Israel. How do I know that? It's in the context. Because they were at some sort of a sacred gathering where the Torah of Moses was being read. So the idea is not that all foreigners, non-Hebrews, were to be expelled from Jerusalem or Judah. Nor is this a call for marriage unions of Hebrews to non-Hebrews to be terminated. Rather, foreigners were not to participate in sacred Hebrew assemblies. Now, I also want to address a problem here that is a challenging one on one hand, but not so much on the other. <clears throat> Our Western Christian worldview reads into these verses that no Gentile, that's what foreigner means, can become part of Israel through marriage or otherwise. Or at least no Gentile from the Ammonites or the Moabites can be included in Israel. But it must be understood that in our day, the religious sphere is considered as completely independent from our race or our heritage. For example, being Hispanic doesn't automatically mean that you're Catholic. Being from Germany doesn't automatically mean that you're a Lutheran. Being from England doesn't automatically make you an Anglican. And being an Arab doesn't automatically mean that you're a Muslim. They're separate issues. But this was not so in the Bible era. Your race and your heritage determined your religion. The two were organically connected. And Ammonite worshipped their chief god who was Molech. A Moabite worshipped their chief god who was Chemosh. And it didn't change just because you migrated or even moved to Judah. However, a person from Ammon or Moab could renounce their god and accept the god of another race or nation. By doing that, They've not just changed their religion. They've changed their national identity. Because once again, the two are indelibly connected. Thus, for instance, Ruth was born a Moabite. She began life by worshipping Chemosh. However, at one point, she gave up Chemosh 
worship and adopted Yehovah worship. Now, she was a Hebrew, both religiously and nationally. Who could forget those inspiring words of confession and conversion that came from her lips? In Ruth 1, 16 and 17 we read, But Ruth said, Don't press me to leave you and stop following you. For wherever you go, I will go. Wherever you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people. Your God will be my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I'll be buried. May Adonai bring terrible curses on me and worse ones as well if anything but death separates you and me. She used to be a Moabite, but no more. So in the Bible, when we read of people living in Israel or Judah and then they're called by a certain nationality or race and it is not the Hebrew nationality or race it's automatic that they have remained pagan so a reference to a foreign wife of a Jew necessarily means that this woman was not only born of a foreign race and nation but she stayed identified with this foreign race and nation and most importantly with that nation's God The same goes for any Gentile person married to a Hebrew or not. Now naturally, our text doesn't explain all that because this social religious convention was understood. It was the basis of all cultures of the Bible era. As far as the writers of the Bible were concerned, they had created a document that would be read by people of their own Israelite culture. There was no explanation needed. So the first three verses show a continuing concern to faithfully follow God's Torah, including barring foreigners from Israel's religious rituals, even if it negatively affected the economy, created some hurt feelings, maybe even a little civil discord. But beginning in verse 4, the other side of that coin appears. The statement prior to this means that what we're about to be told happened before the separating of the foreigners from Israel in verses 1 through 3. And it explains that Eliashiv, the Kohen, the priest, the one who was put in charge of, uh, as the supervisor over the storage rooms at the temple that were used for collecting the tithes of the food uh, to be distributed to the, to the uh, Levites and priests was involved. However, this was probably not the same El Yeshiv who was the current high priest. We talked last week. Let me make that clear. We have El Yeshiv, the regular priest, who's being talked about, not El Yeshiv, the high priest, who existed at the same time. We talked last week about the difficulties with names in the Bible. Because essentially people didn't have first and last names but rather just one name. And many people shared that one name, that same name. And like in our day, there would be cycles of name popularity that came and went. So there would always be a larger than typical number of certain names at use for a time as fathers and mothers chose those currently popular names for their children. The Eliashiv in this passage was indeed a priest, a Kohen. And so he had rightful access to anti-rooms 
uh, attached to the temple structure. But he wasn't the high priest. But even more important, he was close with the foreign potentate Tovia, who just a few years earlier had made such trouble for Nehemiah and the wall building project. In fact, just to refresh our memories, here's a brief summary of what this fellow Tovia had played to this point. In Nehemiah 4, we read this, verse 1. But when Sanvalat, Tovia, the Arabs, the Ammonites and the Ashdodites heard that the repairs on the walls of Jerusalem were going forward and the breaks were being filled in, they became very angry. And all of them together plotted to come and fight against Jerusalem and thus throw us into confusion. This is the same Tobia. And it boggles the mind that this influential priest who oversaw the storage rooms at the temple had a close and friendly relationship with him. In fact, Eliashiv and Tovia had become family through intermarriage. To make matters even worse, Tovia was from Ammon, one of the people groups of which God ordered Israel to have no relations. But to top it all off, Eliashiv gave one of these sacred temple chambers that were supposed to be used for food storage for the temple workers to Tovia to use for his own personal purposes. But verse 6 is the kicker. This was happening because Nehemiah had been recalled to Babylon by King Artaxerxes after having stayed for 12 years in Jerusalem. So essentially the scenario is that the Jewish leader left for a time. And every reform that he and Ezra had instituted began to unravel in his absence. One of the debates among scholars is how long Nehemiah might have been gone for all of this to happen. In reality, it's all speculative because we're not given any clues that might tell us. So what can we say about this with any degree of certainty? Very little. We are told that Nehemiah asked for permission to come back to Judah, which means that it was his request to return to Jerusalem as opposed to the king sending him back on a royal mission. One has to at least reasonably suspect that just as before his first trip to Jerusalem, when he got word of the bad conditions in Judah by means of a message from his brother Hanani, that he also received news of the rapidly deteriorating circumstances that's now leading to a second trip. And the first thing Nehemiah did was to toss Tovi out in his ear. Remove all his stuff from the temple storage room and bring back everything that had been removed from it that belonged there in the first place. This seemed to include temple implements as well as food stores. And we begin to see a side of Nehemiah emerge that we had little hint of in earlier parts of this book. Now see, we've known Nehemiah to be a pretty cool customer. Thoughtful, but frank, in his responses to opponents as well as to allies, who understood politics and how to deal with politicians. No doubt he was strong-willed, he was not easily bent, and he exuded a confident persona. But now we start to see an anger and a fury in him that until now he had felt the need to control, but no longer.
The situation, however, was even worse than Nehemiah had feared. The ties that that statement of faith had promised and the vow agreement of all the people to properly support the temple and the temple workers, something that God had commanded in the law, had ceased to be operative. The Levites had no means left to them of making a living to feed the families except to abandon their temple temple occupations in order to farm. Verse 11 is very telling. Something that we should all pay attention to. Nehemiah says that to stop supporting the temple workers is to abandon the house of God. If we look back to chapter 10, we'll see that the people and the leaders had sworn to uphold a statement of faith that consisted of seven articles. Obedience to God's Torah is the source of law and truth. Marriage, Shabbat, Shemitah, the sabbatical year. Supporting the temple and the priesthood. Providing for the altar and firstlings. So far... In just a handful of years since the people had pledged with joy to uphold this creed, item by item they broke their promises. In fact, the final words of chapter 10 help us to understand why Nehemiah chose the words he did to describe what the people had done. In Nehemiah 10.40, which takes place at the ceremony where everybody agrees to the statement of faith. It ends with, we will not abandon the house of God. To which Nehemiah here in chapter 13 responds upon his return to Jerusalem, why is the house of God abandoned? See, it's interesting to me that Nehemiah equates disobedience to God's Torah as regards supporting the temple with abandoning the house of God. And regularly we read in the Torah and in the Tanakh that God says that He equates His people's general disobedience to Him as abandoning Him. That's something we need to think long and hard about. Because many modern believers have the tendency to assume that despite lapses in our adherence to God's principle or an ebbing of our faithful service to the Lord in whatever capacity, that we shall determine whether and to what measure we've incurred any harm to our relationship with God. What this usually amounts to is denial or worse, a false security that comes with thinking that upon our acceptance of Christ as Savior, that all obligation and obedience to Him ends. The Lord says that at some point, He considers such behavior and attitude as abandonment. That's a strong word. Now, Nehemiah had the authority to do more than just chastise. He could coerce. There's no hint that when he went back up to Babylon at the call of his king that he lost his title of Tirshatah, governor of the province of Judah. And by the way, for those that are paying close attention, why is King Artaxerxes called the king of Babylon? 
Why is it said that Nehemiah journeyed back to Babylon? I mean, after all, a century had gone by since control of the empire had passed from Babylon to Persia. The Babylonian empire was no more, but the reason is quite simple, actually. Babylon was one of four places, the city of Babylon, was one of four places where the Persian king had palaces. Each apparently used on a seasonal basis. And since Babylon was the capital city of the previous empire, and the city had not been destroyed, the king of Persia would of course have been seen as the de facto king over Babylon, even if his official technical office was king of Persia. And if we take the scriptures at its word, then when Nehemiah returned north, his destination was indeed the city of Babylon, since that is where King Artaxerxes must have been currently residing. Now, Nehemiah Nehemiah not only banished Tovia, he also took Eliashiv's authority, the priest Eliashiv's authority over the storage rooms away from him, and he gave it to three men. A priest named <coughs> Shelemiah, a Torah teacher named Sadok, and a common Levite named Pedia. Further, he assigned an assistant uh, to them, a fellow named the son of Zakur, Hanan, is believed to be his name. And Nehemiah must have had first-hand knowledge of and experience with these particular men, as he pronounced them, all reliable. He made it their personal responsibility to him to assure that these Levites and priests received the full measure of what they were due. Nehemiah is the example of godly leadership that all believers in leadership ought to strive for. He was a man of highest moral principle who obtained his morals from God's word. Not from politically correct trends. Not from his own version of right and wrong. But he was also a man of action. Popularity played little role in his life. Principle without deeds is pointless. Intention without action is dishonest. Bowing to pressure from the enemy or even to the wrong desires of the crowd is cowardly. And Nehemiah proved himself to be none of these. Nehemiah's actions might seem harsh to us and no doubt it did to those directly affected. However, When one stares down rebelliousness and wickedness and the enemy, drawing a line is always going to be met with resistance and with accusations and with disagreement. Nehemiah's unstated motto was, holiness is not negotiable. H.G.M. Williamson puts it this way from a position of strength and security it is possible to help and to forgive and to welcome 
But in weakness, both parties will sink together. Next week we'll conclude the book of Nehemiah.